0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today is 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare it to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify, purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Just stay standing. We're going to share the Apostles' Creed together, which will be on the screen. we will say this in a nice loud voice. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Y'all can be seated. We're we're making our way through the Apostles' Creed, and if it's your first time here, we're talking about sin on your first Sunday. So if you want to call next week a do-over, you're welcome to do that, but uh, we're talking about the forgiveness of sin. I think this is the ninth article in uh, the Apostles' Creed. A sin, knowing now that sin is our topic, may be the cue for some of you that you are going to begin to tune out. It could be that you have grown up in church world and that word is so tired in your imagination that you perhaps no longer want to talk about it. Uh, It's a word that that is not pleasant, perhaps. There's a a saying, um, I've heard it a lot in church world, they say, time in erodes awareness of the longer you're around a thing the less you're aware of it like that really ugly couch in your house everyone who comes to your house knows it's a hideous couch but you're so used to it you no longer think about such things and similarly with with words like sin or other churchy type words our our understanding of them the uh, the response they're meant to evoke uh, it no longer happens because we've been around it just so much uh, to other people, the topic of sin, uh, and the word sin, it kind of harkens back to simpler days, or you know, you remember back to fundamentalist type days where it felt like everything was a sin. My grandmother uh, Marie Smith, who's no longer with us, I remember uh, Grandma talking about things that were sins when she was a child, and growing up in the church uh, for her, everything was a sin. Wearing a sleeveless blouse—that's a sin. Dancing, that's a sin. Skating, that's a sin. Going bowling, also a sin. Playing cards, also a sin. All of these things were sins until, I don't know if there's an official sin board that designates what is and what is not sin, but at some point, the sin board got together and determined that some of these things were no longer sins, and so my grandma was known to wear a sleeveless blouse from time to time while playing cards, sin upon sin. <laughs> to others, the word sin doesn't really make a lot of sense, except for in context of, like, cheating on a diet. Like, oh, these brownies are so sinful. I don't know if you can do impersonations like that anymore. I don't know if I'm offending anyone. <laughs> I'm so bad, you know. Oh, man, what an uncomfortable lack of laughter at that. <laughs> but sin is a, it's a non-threatening term and for many people. It's a domesticated term. There are other people, uh, when they learn that I'm going to talk about sin today, are quite relieved, thinking it's about time. So people, especially, this is a criticism I get from time to time, that friends, especially those who've come from a Reformed background, where it's sin, 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 come and they don't feel like they hear me say that word a lot. And I'll admit, I try to use other words first to try to get around that time in erodes awareness of thing. And so I'll talk about human rebellion, or I'll talk about a brokenness. But but I, I am concerned that some congregations so emphasize the message of sin, that we're sinners, that we're sinful, that we're despicable, that they drown out the message of grace. And that's a point of concern. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Like the Keller quote, you know, we're more sinful than we can possibly imagine and also more deeply loved than we can possibly fathom. We need to hear the whole truth about ourselves. I remember I was at uh, North Point, Andy Stanley's church, for a conference, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, and I was in a workshop, and I was paired up with this other person, and we were given the this, this strange assignment of prioritizing doctrinal truths and putting them in order of importance. And the person that I was with put original sin as number one, and then down the line somewhere was the doctrine of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, boy, that seems a little backwards. I don't want to believe in the problem more than I believe in the solution. Though, you know, the empirical evidence of our lives often lends credibility to such an ordering of things because sin, the the doctrine of original sin, is the one that we can all empirically verify because we've lived it. Now, it seems that for some people, the Bible doesn't begin with a message of good news in Genesis 1 and 2, but it begins in chapter 3. For some people, their Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall of humanity. And it doesn't end in Revelation 21 and 22, the renewal and the restoration of all things. Instead, it ends in Revelation 20, which is the lake of fire. And for many people, their understanding of the gospel, of things of God, goes from bad news to bad news. But that is not the whole story of the gospel. It begins with a very good creation that God delighted in. Humanity at the apex of it, saying, you, humanity, are very good, and it ends with a restored and a renewed creation, God finally among His people. We need to tell ourselves the whole story and the whole truth. Now, what I hope to do in the next couple of minutes today is just have a, a reorienting, I hope, conversation about sin and what sin is and what sin does to us and, 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 and ultimately what Jesus has done with it. Uh, the Anglican Church of North America has a catechism, a, a question-and-answer training guide to teach people the fundamentals of the faith. And in the, the 2019 catechism, it asks, what are sins? It says, sins are intentions, acts, or failures to act that arise out of my corrupted human nature and fall short of conformity to God's revealed will. So in, in this definition, we have sins of commission. There are things that we do that reflect that on the inside we're broken. There are also good things that we fail to do. These are what we call sins of omission. And all of these tell a story about our inner life and our need for uh, redemption. Now, some of you may say, well, look, what's sin to you might not be sin to me, like my grandma in sleeveless blouses. It it, it reminds me a bit of the story of the Indian proverb where two people are walking along the path and in the distance they see this, this squiggly thing on the road. And one person says, hey, it's not a point of concern, it's just a rope. The other person says, I'm a little bit worried because I think that's a serpent. Now, some people may agree to disagree thinking about the topic of sin. Well, you think it's harmless, I think it could actually kill me. If it could kill us, it's something that we should take with a measure of seriousness. If there's a chance it's going to bite me, I want to make sure to avoid it. Now, the risk of relegating sin to the topic of some religious abstract theory or cheating on a diet, uh, is is running the same risk of overlooking the snake in the path. Whether you believe in it or not, it still could come up uh, to bite you. Uh, A book that I would recommend not to all of you, but to some of you, would be uh, one called Unapologetic by Francis Spuford. It came out a number of years ago, and it's a book for people who are a little irritated with how um, prim and proper some theological books might be. Uh, This is written, Francis Buford is a a Brit, and he curses like a Brit. The F word is on almost every page of the entire book. (laughs) So that's why I say I recommend it to some, but not all. Children, ask your parents if you should be reading that. But in the book, uh, Spuford is attempting to do something similar to what Lewis did, C.S. Lewis did many years prior, where Lewis was making a, a strong case, intellectual case, for the credibility of Christianity. But instead, with Spuford, he's not trying to make an intellectual argument for the validity of Christianity, but rather an emotional one. So in the context of the UK where, where Christians, like evangelical Christians represent a very small number of people, he's saying, he's saying to a group of people who believe, look, Christians are wackos, they're nut jobs, what they believe is dangerous or irrelevant. He's saying, okay, you can believe all of these things, but let me make a case to you for why the gospel actually makes a lot of emotional sense and should be given a fair hearing. And so he's writing with an audience in mind that's a little bit on the salty side and doesn't have in mind like keeping things prim and proper and PG as we normally would try to do in the church. And so Spuford has a definition of sin that I really like that I think evokes a response uh, that, that the word sin should elicit in all of us. Here's how he begins. He says, What I and most believers understand by the topic of sin... It's got very little to do with yummy transgression. He's talking about cheating on your diet here. No, for us, sin refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to screw up. Now, that word is in brackets. Let the reader understand. (laughs) Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to screw things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. No, sin is our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods and promises and relationships we care about and our own well-being and other people's. Spuford answers the question, what is sin, and in an irreverent way. I, I don't know if you've caught his definition here. He represents it by this acronym all throughout his book. The human propensity to screw things up. That's sin. And that hits different <laughs> than just the, the word sin used in, a, used in a stuffy kind of way. When we're talking about sin, we're talking about the proclivity, the propensity that all human beings have to make a mess of our lives. To make a mess of our relationships. To take these things that were precious and important to us and turn them into an absolute disaster. It's the human propensity to screw things up. And Spuford says there are moments in life where you realize you've done it. Where you don't just have this propensity or inclination to do it, but you've actually made a mess of everything, you've jacked it all up. He says, our appointment with realization often comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure, when a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child seen only on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational coke habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be dramatic, though. Maybe you're lying in the bath, And you notice that you're 39 and that the way you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted. And yet you got here by choice, by a long series of choices for things which at any one moment temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. The human propensity to screw things up dawns on you. You realize that you have indeed screwed things up. Anybody depressed yet? <laughs> uh, for the Christian, a, a fundamental reality of understanding the nature of our world uh, it comes with this recognition that each of us have been encoded with a tendency to screw things up, to mess things up, to sin. In... in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, 1 John, uh, John says, if we claim to be without sin, if we say, I am the one exception on earth, I do not have this propensity to screw things up, we are liars. It says we're deceived and the truth is not in us. We've deceived ourselves. Paul, in his pastoral epistles from time to time, he's he's coaching these young pastors, will say, hey, here's a trustworthy saying. Remember this one. He does it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that bears full acceptance. Keep this one in your back pocket. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Pastor to pastor, you can't graduate from this recognition that Jesus came to save sinners and you're one of them. In fact, you're the worst of them. He's not intending to heap shame. He's he's intending to invite compassion, both for ourselves and for those whom Timothy was pastoring. Jesus came for this purpose to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves sinners. Jesus got accused of being a drunk because of the people he hung out with. He got accused of of, of being constantly in bad company. People spoke poorly of him because of who he hung out with. Jesus loves sinners. But he has indignation at the things that sin does to us, at the propensity to screw things up. And he also has compassion on us for the things that sin has done to us and that we've done to ourselves. What does sin do to us? Well, first, sin warps our perspective. Sin warps our perspective. Um, I'm really glad I've figured things out with my eyeballs. I I have terrible vision, and I remember there was a season at Asbury where I was preaching and sometimes in front of a lot of people, and I would have to touch my eyeballs in front of a lot of people because I couldn't see my notes and I couldn't see people. If these things pop out, I'm a mess. If I'm behind the wheel, I am dangerous. (laughs) That's why the corrective lenses thing on the back of my license is really important. I have to pay attention to that. If I don't, if I can't see right, I'm a danger to myself and others. This is what sin does to us; it, it warps our ability to rightly discern the way forward, uh, the good way forward. Uh, it feels like almost every single night of my life, some child will call out needing something. The bags under my eyes are growing permanent. And uh, I, will, I will get out of bed, I don't put on my glasses, and I stumble my way toward the children's room. I get the door open, I appease the child. I have no idea how long I'm in there, but when I'm ready to leave, I stand up and I can't see a thing. It's the dark, I have bad vision, and so I'm feeling around, and I'm like, why is this door not letting me into the hallway? Oh, it's the kid's closet. I do this most nights of my life. And uh, this is what sin does to us. We're, we're smart people in lots of ways. We're experienced, intelligent, mature, knowledgeable people in lots of ways, and yet sin jacks with our ability to make good choices, and so we make the dumbest decisions. Do you, do you remember Dwight Schrute to Michael? says, Michael, your heart is a wonderful thing, but it makes some terrible decisions. <laughs> sin warps our perspective. It's like we're groping in the dark. John uses this imagery of dark and light, walking in the dark to be a metaphor to being in habitual sin, uh, living into our propensity to screw things up. Sin warps our perspective. Secondly, sin estranges us from others. And nothing drives a wedge in a relationship like a guilty conscience. Nothing drives a wedge in our relationship with with God when we, we know we've done things that we've not owned up to, we've not taken responsibility for Nothing creates awkwardness or tension in a marital relationship or in a close friendship or relationship with a significant other or your children like the awareness that there's a secret, that they've, they've, you've habitually done something. And it's not just the, the behavior that's sinful that creates the wedge. It's that there's a secret at all that you can't talk about. It tells the story there's something that's not safe for us. Sin estranges us from other people. Sin loves isolation, and sin loves secrecy. It's like, you know, a a candle needs oxygen to keep burning. Our sin needs secrecy. Our sin needs isolation to continue to exist. And this week, I just felt in my heart like a sigh of compassion for myself and for all of us who from time to time find ourselves just utterly exhausted by the weight of keeping our sin a secret. And the loneliness of, of habitually living into our propensity to screw things up, it just brings loneliness. It's tiring to live that kind of way. On the other hand, you know, if sin isolates and estranges us from people. John, I think this is a very, very insightful verse, says in verse 7, it says, but if we walk in the light, if cognizant of our propensity to screw things up, we readily bring these tendencies into the light As He is in the light, the benefit is that we can have fellowship with each other. The benefit is that we can get along and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. By virtue of willingly bringing what we prefer to stay hidden in the dark into the light, the benefit is intimacy with other people and and with our Creator. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we can recover that. Uh, there's a, an 8th century saint who has a great name. It's just Bede, B E D E. And commenting on this passage, he said, John gives us an indication of how we can know that we're on the right track. Okay, you ready for the indication that you're on the right track? It's whether we rejoice in the link of brotherly fellowship we have with those who are journeying along with us toward the pure light. What's, what's an indication that we're walking in the light? we can enjoy guilt-free intimacy and friendship with other people who are following Jesus. So I put this to you in the form of a question. What story does the health of your most intimate relationships tell about how and whether you're walking in the light? That's an uncomfortable one. What story does the health of your most intimate relationships tell about whether you're walking in the light? You could use this question retroactively to make sense of some of the terrible choices that other people have made that you've been a victim of. When you're, you're trying to make sense of how or why did they do this thing that they did, you can look at it and think, well, they were living in the dark. No wonder there was tension. No wonder there was awkwardness. No, no wonder we felt estranged because they weren't walking in the light. And so as a result, our relationship suffered. Think about the network of your relationships with our Creator, with those who are closest to you? What story does the health of your most intimate relationships tell about how and whether you're walking in the light? Uh, the world is deeply screwed up, we, we understand this to be true. We know that other screwed up people have done things to jack with us, to mess with us, and it's left us broken, but what happens when the realization sets in that this propensity to screw things up has not been out there, but it's been in here in your own heart? And you have one of those moments of recognition that you are, you are the one who's done this. You're the one who's created uh, isolation for yourself and for others. You're the one who's driven this wedge because of your choices. Spewford again. He says the bad news about our propensity to screw things up is bad news about us not just other people. And when the conviction of it settles in, when we reach one of those stages in our lives where the sorrow of our failures hangs in our chest like a weight, and waking up in the morning is painful because every time the memory of what's wrong has to ooze back over the lovely blindness of the night, and you'll know what I mean if you've been there. Then the idea that it would help to cling to a cozy sense of victimhood seems as silly as it would to try and fight off the flu by waving a toy lightsaber. In other words, there are moments of realizations that you're the guilty party. It wasn't circumstantial. It wasn't because someone else didn't do their thing. You realize this was me. I'm the one who messed this all up. Bad news at those moments feels like the whole truth about you. It isn't. It's only a truth about you. But the way back to the rediscovery of the rest of what's true begins with the admission that you really are guilty of the particular bit of the human propensity to screw things up. That's the thing that's making you feel awful. If you don't give the weight in your chest its true name, you can't even begin You can't even begin to heal. Sin sin is by nature deceptive. It's spinning a false narrative. It warps our ability to make good choices about the things that are most important to us. It estranges us from other people. And, And when we have those moments where we realize we're guilty of it, It is a gift. It is a gift. I I like listening to basically one podcast, which is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, because I need some levity in my life. And in one episode, Conan was talking with a guest. I don't recall who it was, but they were talking about Conan's upbringing as a Roman Catholic. And he, he talked about the shame that he was made to feel anytime he would stand in front of a crucifix, especially in Roman Catholic churches with the body of Jesus on it. And he remembers growing up with the, the intense shame. It's your fault he's up there. And it put this really bad taste in his mouth about, about the, the topic of sin. It's so heavy-handed and shaming, rubbing your face in it. If you'd only known better, he wouldn't have had to do that. And some of you, when it comes to to thinking about sin, you hear me through that lens. Like, I'm just trying to rub your face in it. And for me, when when we come to grips with the fact that we are sinful, that we have this propensity to screw things up, for me, this is simply telling the truth, not being heavy-handed and shaming. (laughs) I think that reality is our friend. When we live in reality, we're setting ourselves up for success. And so to tell the truth about ourselves that we have the propensity to screw things up and we have in fact screwed things up, when we recognize that, we begin to live in reality. When we see the truth about ourselves, sometimes painfully so, but when we see the truth, we need to speak the truth so that the truth can set us free. I screwed up. Verse 8 and 9, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But here's the good news. If you want to live in reality, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive. The concept of forgiveness is intimately twined with God taking seriously that the sin is real. The propensity to mess things up is real and present. If we confess it, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us. Not just say, okay, we're going to pretend like this didn't happen, but purify us from the stains of those sins so that we can start fresh. When we see the truth about ourselves, we need to speak the truth so that the truth can set us free. For me, talking about confessing sin is not linked with shame. Like I, I don't know if perhaps I've had a different church experience from other people, but the, like sometimes it can be quite difficult to confess your sin to other people, but I don't link that with, like, you worthless piece of crap, you know? I don't associate it with shame. I actually associate it with freedom. To confess your sin is to live in reality, and reality is your friend. Our failure to tell the truth about ourselves that we've messed up indicates that we're presently living in an unreality, in being out of touch with reality, we lack the ability to see and think straight, and so we screw up our most important relationships. When we're walking in the darkness, all of our instincts about the best way forward are usually wrong. <laughs> we think that keeping our sins secret is going to preserve relationships when it actually can destroy them. Confession can actually be one of the most important steps toward intimacy. Intimacy. We think that the confession is going to bring estrangement. We can actually be the road home to like we're finally telling the truth to one another. Confession we think is going to, you know, keeping our sins secret is going to give us freedom, but it actually keeps us in the bonds of slavery to our sin. If you feel guilty about stuff, good. Your heart is not fully hardened yet. That's a really good thing about you. God is at work in your life. There's a little movement that you can respond to. If you feel guilty, praise God. There's hope for you. The first step is just to tell the truth. You remember the emperor's new clothes, this guy full of himself is walking around naked and everyone's chuckling behind his back. This is us all the time. This is us in our most intimate relationships. We're trying to act as if our human propensity to screw things up is not an ever present reality, but the people around us all know it. They can smell it, they can see it. So, what do we do? We bring this into the light. We confess. In the most inelegant of ways, we say to God, God, I screwed up. We confess to God, as those of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we don't even need to do it, bathed in shame. We're bathed in the blood of the Lamb. We confess our sin, we disarm it, and we move on trying to keep in step with the Spirit. In our most intimate relationships, we just tell the truth about ourselves, like, honey, I did this really dumb thing and I'm sorry. Or tell your brother brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, just the truth, hey, I need to confess something so that it won't retain power over me. This is the thing that I did. And what a gift to hear from a brother and sister in Christ. Hey, God's word tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Some of you, before you receive communion today, certainly need to confess to the Lord, or you may need to find a friend in the room and say, I, I have wronged you, and I know it, and I've kept it a secret. I've kept it. and So it's perpetuated distance between us, and I just need to tell the truth. If you feel guilty, if you feel brokenhearted about this, good. The good news is that God wants to be near you in the middle of that. Remember Jesus and the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Think of the image of the prodigal son who having spent all of his inheritance, finds himself at his wit's end. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. For those who know they need a Savior, kingdom of god is theirs listen to isaiah 57 for this is what the high and exalted one says he who lives forever whose name is holy god says i live in a high and a holy place scripture says an inapproachable light but i also live with the one who is contrite to be contrite is to feel bad for what you've done I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, and I'm with them to revive their spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. God wants to be close to you in that awareness of your brokenness and in your, your confession and in your contrition. It reminds me of the story... Of Jesus. You know, often he would, he would teach from what he was seeing, and he'd go into the temple courts, this great, magnificent place, and people would come in with their large money bags and leave their gift at the altar, and others would come uh, a little more scandalously or humbly into the temple. Luke's gospel tells us, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the religious elite, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says, I, dw- I dwell in a high and a holy place, but also with him who is lowly in spirit and contrite. Here's a trustworthy saying that bears full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. We talked about a handful of weeks ago that the name Jesus, Yeshua, means God saves. And just to speak His name, as we said, is grace. Just to speak His name is a prayer in itself. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm one who needs saving. As we come to receive communion today, it's... it's, such an emotionally spiritually relationally healthy part of our weekly rhythm to be in this spot where we acknowledge our propensity to mess things up in the ways in which we have not to shame ourselves but to tell the truth so that we can live in freedom and so as we come to the table we're instructed to reflect on our own lives reflect on our need of grace psalm 19 the psalmist says who can discern their own error Forgive my hidden faults. Ask the Lord uh, elsewhere in the Psalms. Search me and know me. Test me and see if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We're intended to pray, to ask God to reveal our sin and to just throw ourselves at the mercy and the kindness and the love of Jesus who, like the father in the story, of the prodigal welcomes home the one who is, who's, who's spent his inheritance. We'll also come recognizing there, there are relationships that we've broken and we need to tell the truth remembering that we're doing all this in an atmosphere of grace because Jesus was counted among the sinful so that we could be counted among the righteous. He was broken so that we could be made whole. He was estranged so that we might be brought into a place of intimacy, 1 John 3.1. See what love the fathers lavished on us that we would be called children of God, and that's what we are. Hebrews 2.11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. Uh, Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be counted as sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God. A divine exchange takes place, and we can live into this reality, but we have to opt into it through our own need, our own confession, that we need grace, that we are sinful, that we need to be put together, and Jesus is the only one who can do that. This prayer of have mercy on me is not one that we ever graduate from, Remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God, the faithful and just one, will forgive us and will purify us. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we can have fellowship with one another because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. You know what we're made of. You know that we're dust, and to dust we will return. Uh, we are capable of, of brilliance. We're capable of, of shining off your image to the world, and yet like we are still very much dust. We hold this treasure in jars of clay. It's simultaneously true that like we love you, We want to follow you. And it's also true that we make choices that are destructive and at times our perspective gets warped and we get estranged from you and estranged from the people close to us as a result of our habitual choices. So have mercy on us, Jesus. Forgive us. Help us to feel the weight of our choices, not to shame us, but in seeing your kindness to prompt repentance. Help us to live in the light as you are in the light so that we can have fellowship with each other. I pray for all of us, Lord, who are mindful of maybe past sins that we've committed, things that we feel like disqualify us from being counted among your children. We ask once again that you purify our hearts and our minds, reorient us to tell the whole truth about ourselves. We're the righteousness of God. We're children of God. We're without condemnation. Help us to live into our baptized identity your son, your daughter that you love, that you're pleased with. And for those of us who are currently walking in the darkness, give us the grace and the courage to to tell the truth, to say, I screwed up. What have I been doing? Will you forgive me? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We need your mercy. Thank you that in our weakness, Lord Jesus, you hold us in the strength of your prayers. That when we don't know how to pray for ourselves, Holy Spirit, you intercede for us with groans that are deeper than words. And so in these moments, hold us in the strength of your prayers that we might uh, repent with an earnest and an honest heart. We might have the courage and the grace to make bold choices, to walk in the light. And Lord Jesus, as we come to receive Holy Communion, would you pour out your Spirit on us? Make us living beings. Make this bread and this juice so much more than just a simple little snack in the middle of service. May it be a means by which, through the Holy Spirit, we experience the power of the risen Christ. Help us to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Help us to live into our baptized identity. Lord Jesus, we love you and we honor you and we put our trust in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.